Welcome to HFP Conversations, a podcast hosted by the founder of Human Flourishing Project, Patrick Keating. This podcast features renowned practitioners in the fields of movement and physical culture, mindfulness and embodiment, philosophy and spirituality, psychology and self-development. Human Flourishing Project has an ambitious mission and believes that in order to create positive change in the world, we have to create flourishing humans. We do this by empowering individuals to create a state of human flourishing through holistic self-development coaching services. These services utilize the HFP method. The HFP method creates human flourishing through laying out a clear process of mind and body practices and learning, which enable people to overcome their limitations and flourish. To discover more and receive free resources, check out our website and social media links in the episode description. Now enjoy the conversation. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of HFP Conversations. Thank you so much for joining me today for this one. Today we have James Fuller, also known as Strongman Archaeology on Instagram. And James helps people get stronger, more mobile and heal their injuries using a combination of old time strongman lifts and lifts he has created himself to help fix what is wrong with his clients. So he has been helping others in this way for 37 years, first casually and now intentionally. James has competed in grip sport, strongman, powerlifting, weightlifting, and old-time strongman. In this super interesting deep dive of an episode, we get into the history of strength training, and James teaches us what we have as an industry lost and how to get it back. I was first put on to James by Lucas Aaron, um, who's been on the podcast before and who I'll soon release another great round two episode with. So thanks for the recommendation, Lucas. So sit back and enjoy episode 29 of HFP Conversations with James Fuller. Alrighty, so on the podcast today, we have James Fuller. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, James. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Would you mind explaining uh, where you're at right now, where you're situated in the world, um, and just briefly what you, what you do? Basically, I've just uh, taken a lot of the hard-earned lessons of... Uh, the past 37 years or so of training and uh, just trying to pass it on to others, trying to, trying to help people not waste time. Um, it's a balance because you got to let people make mistakes. So you got to let them have their own path. So I just try to, I try not to dictate a path. I just try to nudge them or make suggestions. Um, most of the time, that's what I try to do. But I think there's a, there's a lot of, um, unrealized i think some of it is unrealized and i think some of it is forgotten information and i'm just trying to help people to 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 move better easier and keep it simple i don't like complicated i don't like when people use big words i think the, the more syllables i use in my words the more distance i create between you and me 
and I think if you really want people to understand and, and have that passion, then you've got to make it doable for people, you know? Nice. So I want you to ask, I want to ask you this question at the start, James, which is when you hear the term or the concept human flourishing, what would that look like for you in your life if, if you are feeling in a state of human flourishing? Just being honest with yourself, what you need, what you don't need, being honest about, am I doing stuff that I like to do or am I doing too much stuff that I like to do and not enough stuff that I need to do? You know, I think, uh, I think we grow best with the best environment. And I think, uh, I think we know a lot that we don't want to admit that we know we need. I think we try to make it seem like it's more complicated than it is. And when we really know all we got to do is put our nose down and get to work, you know. So I think we're happiest when we're, when we're struggling. That's the reason why it's called growing pains, not growing comfort. Nice. I like that, James. So I want to jump into your story. Um, you've obviously got a long training history. Give us the... Uh, not so brief, but as detailed as you like, the story of your training history and how you came to um, train in the way that you currently do. Well, I was, uh, I was about 12 and I had sciatica and both my parents had back issues and I figured it was genetic and uh, I just started bodybuilding because that's all there was back then. There was no... Um, you only did powerlifting or weightlifting if maybe there was a gym in your town or if you knew about it. But all the magazines and, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger was big at the time. And uh, so everything was about bodybuilding. If you lifted weights, it was bodybuilding. Um, and no one believed that you lifted weights to get better. It was none of this doing it for health. The magazines would say that, but the bodybuilding magazines, they're going to make it sound like a panacea for everything, you know. So... <laughs> they had something to sell, but no one thought doctors weren't going to tell you to do bodybuilding. Uh, the, even the idea that, uh, even at this time, the idea of reversing diabetes on adult onset diabetes was no, people laughed at you. People thought you were crazy. If you thought that you could take someone who had just started going on insulin and get them to lose, you know, 10, 15 kilos of body fat, clean up their diet, getting them exercising Maybe they won't need that anymore. It wasn't looked at it like that. At those time, at that time, it was just the beginning of the end. It was a long, slow decline, and there was nothing you could do about it. You know, yeah, you could eat the more special diabetic foods, but it really wasn't going to do anything uh, to prevent that or to improve that. It was just saw seen as a steady decline. Uh, it was a time when it was thought that um, once you hit 30, you were going downhill whether you wanted to or not. And there's really not much you could do about it. And you could choose to exercise and diet and try to take care of yourself, but everyone pretty much thought you were in denial. Um, you know, master sport was still pretty new. Powerlifting was the first sport to offer a master's category. And so that was still pretty new. So the whole idea of master's athletes, it was laughed at. So, you know, it's, it's come a long way from that time. So I just, it was out of sheer ignorance that I just started bodybuilding just to try to get stronger so that I'd still be able to work. But there was no understanding that I was going to improve myself. And I wound up actually fixing my sciatica. And slowly over the years, certain things happened that showed me that uh, lifting could actually help people. You know, 
Because, I mean, if you were a bodybuilder, it was because you were narcissistic, insecure, gay, one of those three, you know. There really was no idea that, that training with weights, resistance training was good for you. There was no acceptable reason, you know. So it's been a very interesting journey, let's just say. And, of course, all you had back then was the magazines, which were all bodybuilding. And, and uh, um, the biggest ones, the most popular ones, were promoting something. So if it was uh, uh, muscle development, muscular development, that was through York Barbell. And if you got muscle and fitness or flex, that was weeder. And they were both, you know, competing for attention from the bodybuilders at the time. Uh, if you got Ironman magazine or muscle mag, uh, those were pretty unbiased. And they would publish some radical articles that nobody else would touch. And because they, they really weren't concerned with, with uh, supporting a company line, you know. So it was, it was very interesting, very interesting. So, as I've said before, when I started, I helped people by accident, whereas now I help people intentionally because I've learned from all my mistakes and my experiences, you know. Cool. James, what, were the, what was considered a radical article back in those days? Like, could you give us an example of something that you might have seen in that muscle mag that would have really cut against the, the common grain? I was just thinking about that, uh, an article that I want to dig up from muscle mag. And I believe it was a university, if I remember right, there was a, a university here in the state that was using a stopwatch on your reps. And if you got too slow, they had a preset time of how quickly your reps should be done. And if you went beyond that time, they would tell you to stop the set. And it was a way of preventing you from digging too deep from going into overtraining. Interesting. And so were they saying that they were having success with that? Um, and, and how did you interpret that when you read yeah. it? I thought it was interesting. I thought it was a little too complicated because I would have needed someone to sit there with a stopwatch and watch me. And I just didn't have that. I trained alone. I didn't have money for a gym. Just like a lot of us kids didn't have money for a gym. Uh, it was a treat to work up a couple of bucks and go to the gym with your training partner for the day, you know, uh, and so it was successful, you know, it made sense. And um, it's, it, you know, there's a placebo effect with everything. I think, <clears throat> you know, you can, you can scientifically or empirically be doing stuff that's always worked, that you know works either due to the empirical evidence or due to the science. But if everyone in the gym is training hard and making gains, whatever the system is they're using, you're going to make gains too. Like, I don't know how many times I've, I've watched an interview with someone and they're like, wow, you were benching 500 pounds by the time you were just out of, you know, 20 years old and you were squatting 800 and that's incredible. You must have great genetics. And they, they said, well, everyone else, or there were enough guys in my gym that benched 500 regularly and I saw 800 pound squats on a regular basis. So I figured that's what everyone did. And they took me under their wing. And next thing I know, a few years later, I'm benching 500 and squatting 800 so there's part of that too you know the magic program sometimes is if there's enough monkeys in the same room doing it and having success with it how can that not work you know definitely what's been your experience with training environment um do you train with people now have you trained with people in the past and how has that affected your gains 
I usually, I've almost exclusively trained by myself, except when I was competing in strongman. I would have one day uh, a week for years that I trained with a group, a uh, strongman group, and uh, learning the implements, getting better at the implements. Um, and then there was maybe a year and a half, a couple of years where I, uh, I trained with a group of weightlifters because I was competing in weightlifting at the time. And I trained with one of the top weightlifters in the nation, uh, would wind up, uh, getting a podium finish at the national. So, uh, and that definitely helped training in that atmosphere, you know? So there are times that I've, I've a very short time. I wouldn't say much time out of 37 years. Have I had a training partner? Uh, because and because other than that, other than my weightlifting and my strongman, I do a lot of weird stuff that most people probably wouldn't want to do, or they wouldn't really understand it. You know, so it's it's not been easy. Uh, I've never really needed a training partner. I think now that I'm almost fifty, it'd be cool to have a training partner. But again, I do so so much weird stuff, and I uh, nobody's going to want to do a kneeling pullover and press. You know because of the mobility it requires in their legs, you know? So that's, uh, so you just gotta, you gotta realize you gotta do it because you, you love it. But at the same time, if I'm training with a group, there's definitely an extra energy, energy there too, you know? So you mentioned that you train in weird and wacky ways, at least compared to what people are used to. What right. kind of idea or what kind of adaptations or concepts are you looking to explore or embody in your training and you know what is the question that you're asking that the answers are coming out as you know these different training modalities and explorations well i've been uh, i'm exploring some things i've discovered uh mobility wise and strength wise that i kind of kind of struck upon by accident which is happened more often than not you know and that's why i tell people you're only one new exercise away from fixing a weakness you know there's a lot of crazy wacky stuff out there but if you find something crazy or wacky that works who cares how crazy or wacky it is you know um the problem is a big problem i see and i i'm, I'm gonna go a little off what you're asking um but the, a big problem is competitive weightlifting competitive powerlifting strongman uh we've taken that and we've kind of applied it to training people and it really doesn't have anything to do with training people if you look at the the history of weightlifting the, the sport of weightlifting and the history of the sport of powerlifting uh the movements had more mobility and as time has gone on rule changes and modifications and technique have, have come along over the decades so that the person can lift more weight so there's less mobility work involved less athleticism involved simply for the end goal of lifting more weight. And it's great if you're a powerlifter, it's great if you're a competitive weightlifter, but it really doesn't have anything to do with regular folks that you're trying to work with. Regular folks that have families, jobs, house mortgage, a car payment or two, family commitments, they need to move better and feel better, you know? So, for me, it's, it's really realizing how much that has screwed up what we show people, what we teach people. But it's easy. We have all this data on bench pressing and squats and deadlifts. And I'm not saying they're worthless, but I'm saying there's a lot of other good stuff out there 
that can really help people. But we're taking what we know, we're teaching what we know, and we're not really experimenting and exploring enough. So I don't think we're really giving people the best teaching, the best training that we could give them. And that's a lot of what I'm exploring now. I'm finding, I use a lot of old time strongman movements, but I also use a lot of movements I've created on my own. And uh, I think that's my biggest exploration right now is trying to find things to help people get up and running as soon as possible. You know, I don't have an allegiance to, to powerlifting or weightlifting. I, 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 my allegiance is to the customer that is hurting and wants to move better and not hurt anymore. That's the person I need to throw at them, whatever they need. And if you, if you actually help someone, like I've helped someone, uh, uh, 52 year old with uh, MRI confirmed arthritis of the sacrum. And after a couple months, three months, four months, they're pain free. They haven't gone back yet for an MRI to see if it's, if it's, if it shows up any differently and they really don't care because all they know is they can get up out of bed and they feel better. They feel, they don't feel any more pain. So if you can actually give someone pain-free movement, what better, what better uh, thing can you do for someone than giving them what they asked for, which is results. Instead, they've kind of, we kind of give them what, what, what we can. You know what I mean? I think we need to strive higher and try to give them a hundred percent, give them that pain-free movement. I think we need to do better at that. I, I understand some people have genetic issues and some people have horrific injuries from the past. Um, the genetic issues, I don't come up with that often. It's funny. It seems like everybody has that genetic issue that keeps them from squatting deeply. And I have not yet to come upon it. I've been able to work with, so it must be some weird coincidence that all the people that have that genetic problem were the same people that put up videos. But I don't think that's, that's the case. You know, I think it's just a lack of understanding of squatting. that's really caused a lot of problems. You know, look at box squatting. You know, box squatting for your knees doesn't make a lot of sense because even Westside Barbell will tell you that, that when you box squat and when you squat as a powerlifter, the knees don't move forward or back. So how is that supposed to do anything for knee rehabilitation? Right? So I'm not, again, I'm not saying the sport is worthless and I'm not saying those exercises are worthless, but we really have to take a hard look at what do they really have to offer regular folks? Is it, is it making them pain free? Is it improving the quality of their life? And that's, that's what I'm exploring, you know? Yeah, I really agree with what you're saying, James. Um, I think that the way in which sport has grown into such a big industry and academia has been like sports science is called sports science, right? It's not called fixing the average Joe with creative problem solving science. Um, and so, so much money has been putting to research and that's why there's a billion research papers on bench press when there's a million ways to push, you know, there's a million ways to push right. close, right. you know, you, you know, more than I, in terms of that. Um, and it's almost like we've, we've been pigeonholed into thinking if there's not a study on it and if it doesn't fit into what's traditionally can, if, if it doesn't, and it's funny how, as you're saying, um, a, the sport of weightlifting and powerlifting is a sport. It's not a training methodology, you know what I mean, for average people. If you're training Correct. for weightlifting and powerlifting, Correct. you also need to do other things apart from weightlifting and powerlifting too. Um, some people would argue that all you need is the primary lifts and scaling and some light modifications. But even those people in the sport use 
a more training methodology instead of if I if I try and become a powerlifter, it'll help me be a soccer player. And it's just an almost backwards way of thinking instead of what does a soccer player need? How might I solve those issues? And what are the most um, what are the best ways to solve those issues? And as you said, not being afraid to make up exercises because I feel like strengthening that muscle of trying to solve someone's problem, creating an exercise and ending up with all these random wacky exercises that you've uh, used to help people is, is, is super important as a coach. Yeah. Well, are you doing it for a paycheck or are you, are you doing it because you're really trying to help? You know? Mm-hmm. What, um, what, and the thing is though, if, if you become good at getting people pain free, the word will get out that you're good at doing that and you're going to make all the money you can handle. Yeah. <laughs> if you can help people get pain free. Yeah, that's so true. Um, what existed before this power, uh, this bodybuilding paradigm that still seems to, um, take up a lot of, you know, the get a lot of airtime in the modern day. Like what existed before that? What were people doing for training? Well, if you look way back, back when we were doing more, you know, like um, turn of the century as in uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, we were doing a lot of calisthenic type movement. And there were dumbbells, light dumbbells and wands being used for hundreds, if not thousands of reps. And so when heavier weights came along, and here in the States, that was through Alan Calvert's barbell company back in 1902, um, we made the lifting fit the movement we were already doing. So that, you know, weight, there was no such thing as a power rack, a squat rack. So we were doing a lot more movement with the weights, the weight set, because we were already doing things and we were... So we took the weights and applied it to what we were already doing. Now we take someone who needs help and we make their movement fit the weights that we're already doing. You know what I mean? And so we're having them squat off a rack. We're having them bench off uprights. And that's not what they need. You know what I mean? Definitely. So bodybuilding and weightlifting were tied together up until 1946 here in in the U.S. Um, If you competed in the Mr. America contest, you'll see sometimes that the results don't seem to make sense. You'll see someone who's like second or third that looks way better than number one and two. And that's because you got awarded athletic points. So, yeah, you couldn't just be a bodybuilder. You had to have some like uh, maybe uh, a certain belt color in a martial art. But the bodybuilders figured out that if they can, they knew that the judges for the weightlifting meet, which was before the Mr. America meet, they knew the same judges were going to do both meets the same day. So you weren't getting on stage sometime till midnight as a bodybuilder back in the day for the Mr. America. So they knew that if they went and competed in weightlifting, it really didn't matter how good they placed but it gave the judges a chance to see their muscles in action. And they got credit for being in the meet, which led into adding points to their total for the Mr. America. So I used to think that was great that bodybuilding separated Joe Weider, created the International Federation of Bodybuilders. But in a way, it wasn't because then 
it became more about just getting big and not as much athleticism and strength became too focused, not as balanced. So there, there are good reasons why it split up and there are some good reasons why it should not have split up, you know, but if you look at before bodybuilding and weightlifting parted ways, you'll see that there was, uh, <clears throat> and particularly before the Olympics, so when we, we did our first Olympics here in 1932, and before that, we did a lot of lifts. But after 32 and after again in 36, we started focusing our energy on just doing the lifts that are in the Olympics. And remember, in 30, uh, 32, they had just gone down to three lifts. There used to be five lifts. And that was last done at the 1928 Olympics. And even then, a lot of the old timers were saying five lifts was too few. So if you look at before, say, the 1932 Olympics, at least here in the state, you definitely saw a huge amount of variety in training, very much like what you're seeing me do. The pullover and press, the pullover and push that I do, that came from the sport of wrestling. They did it to keep people from pinning them on the ground. They would practice throwing the weight off them. That came from George Hackenschmidt in the 1890s. He's from uh, Estonia. Um, so it's, it's interesting how it changed. So the bodybuilding became popular. That's when you saw guys started benching more. Bench pressing became popular. It became bodybuilders. That's kind of, it was a calling card was having these big pecs that the weightlifters didn't have. And it was kind of their way of separating themselves from the weightlifters. <clears throat> so I'm hope I'm answering your question. All right. Cause there's a lot to it. It's, it's over a hundred years of change. Sure. But before the bodybuilding, before the bodybuilding and before the Olympics is when you saw all that variety. People would have two to three dozen different lifts they would do, you know. What lifts were included in the Olympic weightlifting? What were the other um, two or three that, that were there before? So the five. So it was pretty interesting because you had a one-hand snatch and a one-hand clean and jerk. But you had to choose which one you wanted to do your dominant hand with because you had to use your non-dominant hand on the other one. True. So, so it was interesting. Like if you knew with your dominant hand you could put up a huge one-hand clean and jerk, then you were going to make sure to use your non-dominant hand for your one-hand snatch. You could not use the same hand for both lifts. Cool. It's funny how, you know, that really highlights the, you know, the scoring system forces people to be more balanced and pursue less of the just purely lifting the weight. And it's funny how, yeah, I think that's what you said before in terms of we used to make the weights fit the movements that we were already doing, but now we've got movements based on what the weights are and we just try and fit unique movers and problems into that and just try and hope that, bench dead and squat, you know, usually halfway down as well, especially in terms of the squat will fix people. And I don't know, do you think that this has caused more problems? Like is any training good training or, or how do you see, you know, the, those forms of training where we try and fit the person into the weight set? How do you see them affecting people? Well, it's, it's, uh, I think any training is better than no training. Being disciplined is better than not being disciplined. Um, 
I think I think we're we're missing some some gross um, we got some gross gaps in in our approach. Um, I was talking about just a second ago about you could lift one lift with the dominant hand, which meant the other lift had to be the non-dominant hand. I don't know why we're training people how to squat. I don't know why we're training people how to how to uh, bench press or or snatch. I think we ought to be starting out with okay, you're right-handed, which means your left hand, your left side is probably behind. Let's do some uh, let's do some seated bent presses to try to balance that out. Let's do some side lunges to try to balance out your left to right. Let's start with where people are probably already off off kilter. They're already probably twisted. So I, you know, because I'm right-handed. So if I'm right-handed, I'm probably already twisted more towards this side, you know. So why don't we fix that by balancing out someone's rotation of the spine and lateral motion of the spine and balance out that left to right the best we can. I don't think you're going to get a one-to-one -one relationship, but I think you can get about 90% of your non-dominant side of uh, being 90% as good as your dominant side. So I, I think that's where we're missing a lot. It kind of makes sense. You're not either front-handed or rear-handed. You're either right or left-handed, right? Most of us. There's a few ambidextrous people out there. But uh, I think that's where we're making a gross mistake is by saying, you know, we're teaching them to squat, which means they're going to always, you're always going to favor your stronger side. If you bench press, if you curl with a barbell, if you, whatever you do with a barbell and two hands on it, you're always going to favor one side more than the other. The stronger side carries the other side. That's why a simple way of improving your overhead press is train with dumbbells for a month. And then go back to a barbell. You're going you're gonna to have huge gains because you've taught the non-dominant side to carry its own weight, so to speak. You know? Yeah. I, I rarely find clients that I work with who I feel compelled to work with bilaterally because almost everyone that I work with, no matter their training age um, <laughs> and training knowledge and training history, is... In my experience, at very least, like grossly misbalanced, um, and it's and it's it, it's very hard to avoid. You know, rarely do people like brush their teeth with their left hand one night and brush their teeth with their right, right. hand, or hold the right. pan or hold the knife and fork. There's always right. a dominance that we're reinforcing, right. and right. if you think about the weight of reps of right-handed teeth brushing versus left-handed teeth brushing and like just the, the rigidity of your shoulder while you're brushing your teeth, it's millions and millions of reps and there's a lot to outweigh. And obviously when you're training unilaterally as well, you're usually working through like maybe a more full range of motion and maybe higher stability requirements, which again are probably number two and three on the most needed list for most people that come in, you know? Well, and, and uh, it was a big discovery for me when I got into one-hand snatches and one-hand cleans. Uh, I didn't realize how much having two hands on the bar, you only move up and down. You only move vertically. You're doing a one-hand snatch or a one-hand clean, you are all over the place, side to side, up to down, forward and back. There's so much more movement. It literally took... It felt like I went from a two-dimensional plane to this huge three-dimensional difference. Like I, I'm like, man, I've been missing out on some stuff. So heavy, you know, going heavy on one-hand snatches, one-hand cleans, 
one hand jerks, uh, dumbbell swings, and just really realizing, wow, there's like a whole bunch more athleticism and coordination going on here. So you take a client, let's say you only got a half an hour with them and you have them practice one hand snatching versus two hand snatching for half an hour. They may not lift anywhere near as much weight going one handed, but they're going to do a lot more movement, a lot more coordination. And uh, if you want to talk holistic of balancing out power and coordination and, and strength, I'm going to say that one hand snatch beats the two hand snatch. No problem. Not even a, not even a second thought about it, you know? For sure. Um, I'm interested to hear what you worked on with the, with your client, with the arthritic sacrum. Like how did you approach that and what kind of exercises and techniques were you using with that person to help them? I, um, it was the hardest client I've ever had and I never want another one harder than that. That was, that was like walking rigor mortis. I mean, they were ready for the casket. They could not, they were just tight, tight all over. It's like they, and I think this happens to a lot of people, but you know, they, they slowly close in. No, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. I can't do this. Next thing you know, they're wrapped up just like a mummy and they, they can't do anything, you know? And I, and I think that's the problem that we're not addressing. And, um, with this person, I, uh, I assumed that it was a combination of uh, very tight calves, which they definitely did have. And uh, which, of course, is the foundation. It's going to affect everything above it. And, uh, and also just doing, realizing that they're right-handed or left-handed. So let's start doing things that work them laterally. And let's try to balance out the left to right. So we were using twisting side bends and cross leg side bend every other workout we'd alternate which one and after a while because they, they were so tight it just took them forever to open their body up and they were blind they were blind as far as feeling i call it a body blindness like they had no connection they couldn't tell if a muscle i could see a muscle contract but they could not feel it they had no insight into what their body was doing they were completely blind to their body and uh they they really started liking the cross leg side bend and it's funny because after a certain point months down the road they'd be doing it and i could hear like three or four cracks in their lower back and it would just be the tension coming out of there most likely it was a quadratus lumborum because that's the i believe it's the only muscle that connects to the sides of the vertebrae I believe it connects uh, L1 through 4, uh, the lowest floating rib, and uh, then it connects down onto the crest of the ilium, you know. And uh, that tends to give them the most relief at this point. And know? so, James, are we talking about sitting cross-legged on the ground, flexing straight sideways? Standing. Okay. Cross-legged yep, as in one in front of the other. Is that what you mean by yeah. that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Cross leg side bend. Yeah. So pretend you're going to do some side bends and then take, uh, take the, take the side. You really want to stretch and work. You're going to take that leg and you're going to throw it over the other one. You know, and that's, yeah. 
and I and you let the front leg. You can either let the front leg bend or not. Depends on what you're trying to hit. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're just doing it for variety, it's up to you. Aside from that, I tell people to go where the pain is, go where the tension is, where you feel like you need to release that tension. And then mm-hmm. a twisting side bend is just like standing like you're gonna do a regular side bend, except you lower and turn and try to land the dumbbell on the outside of the other foot. You know? Okay. And that really helps elongate those lower lats, lower obliques, quadratus lumborum, uh, glute medius, uh, tensor fascia, uh, fascia latte, um, IT band, you know. You got to get that lower back and those side hips moving, you know. And, you know, I think a lot of the, you know, your, even like the bent press is something that's not super known about or common. And it seems incredibly demanding on the spine. Um, And, you know, the QL is, is a muscle that is so like under recognized in terms of its contribution to pain and its contribution to function when it's strong and mobile. Um, Like talk us a bit more. If someone had no idea about lateral, especially lateral plus twisting movements, like talk about why and how and where they can start with those ones. Well, I I would say you could do the, the side bend with a uh, crossing the legs, standing, just a lightweight, doesn't have to be very heavy. Um, if you want to accentuate the stretch, you put your hand behind your head, opposite the weighted, the, the side that holds the hand. Um, but let the weight do the work, and that's kind of the trick, is I, you don't have to force yourself down. If you use enough weight, you don't have to use a heavy weight, but if you use enough weight, you start doing your reps and you get to rep 12 and 15, it'll start pulling you down, you know, and it kind of does the work for you. And all you got to do is count reps. You don't have to think about, you know, whenever you try to go and touch your toes and you, you struggle and you push to get down and it hurts, you don't have to do that. You let the weight do the work for you. You let it help pull you apart, you know, and you control how far and how fast it does that. You don't have to go any faster than you want to. But that definitely is a good place to start. That would, going back and forth, and, and you'll feel one side is much tighter than the other. So what I'll do is, is sometimes I'll have somebody start with the, with the tight side, go to the side that isn't tight, have them do a few reps, and say, see how good that feels? All right, now let's go back to the other side and get that side to feel that way. And that's re- it's really that simple. Don't let anyone tell you it's difficult. It's not. It's just taking some of, some of the right movement, putting it in the right spot, doing enough of it. Um, like usually the corrective work, I don't think I have anyone do more than two days a week. You know, They can do more than that, but once they learn it, I'm usually having them push the weight and get stronger at it. And the reason for that is you're obviously too weak to be pain-free in that position. So we need to get your strength up with this movement so that the pain is gone. So if you start with a 10, you got, you folks use kilos down there, right? Yeah. So if you start with 10 kilo dumbbell, you're doing 15 or 20 reps. You may have pain until you're doing a 25 kilo dumbbell 
per reps. And you may have to, it may be before that, it may be only 30 kilos. But there's going to be some point that you have to get stronger so that the pain stops because now you get strong enough or when you get strong enough, your body's going to stay open. The joint will stay where you've taught it to be. But you need enough weight and enough repetition to get the joint to stay where you want it. It's kind of a neuromuscular re-education. So what's your uh, perspective on pain, pushing into pain, training with pain? How much, what type of pain, you know, do you let people train in it or do you try and avoid it completely? It's, um, I don't have people warm up first with a new exercise. I want to see if it, if it doesn't hurt cold, then that, then that means it's a good exercise, that it's going to help that area. That's an old trick I learned from uh, the first Mr. Olympia, Larry Scott, talked about that. And that, that has never failed me in my own personal experiences or anyone else I've helped. Um, but I am going to tell them that there's going to be pain in that you're probably going to feel a cramp with a muscle that hasn't been used in a while. You know, if you've got someone who's slouched over so much, when you finally start pushing them shoulders back and you start getting them to, to use that upper back and that neck, they're going to have horrible cramping. That's just how it's going to have to be for a while. I'm not going to make them do a workout that they would be doing six months from now, but they're going to have to do some work. There is going to be some pain. But as a coach or as a trainer, you have to realize that you're not dealing with athletes that are looking at a contract. You're dealing with people that are paying you to help them feel better, and they're kind of looking at you like, I'm not feeling better. What's going on? <laughs> so you have to be careful with that. You have to be smart about it. You have, to, you have to be able to talk them into it up to a point. But you're also going to be fair and say, well, that's enough for today. There's always next time. I don't want people stressed out thinking I'm going to torture them every time they come in. I don't want that either. But it, it is temporary. You know, We're just trying to get them basically to – kind of like a tune-up on a car. You know, we're trying to get their posture so the shoulders are back, so the neck is over the body, the neck is over the shoulders, the head is over the shoulders, you know, the chest is up. You know, we're looking for those good posture cues, you know. And if, if I have to take pictures of video to show them the improvement, I'll do it. Whatever I need to help encourage them. But, yeah, there's going to be some pain. But if something like jarring happens in their shoulder and they drop the weight, then obviously something's not good, you know. So you just have to use a bit of common sense as well, you know. I'm interested to hear about your perspective on rep schemes. Um, I, as a lot of people do commonly, used to train low rep, high rest um, because that's what you do in in body in uh in powerlifting right if you want to get strong who is the strongest you know inverted commas powerlifters how do they train you know long rest times sometimes or um and things like that so i feel like a lot of the current like fitness paradigm um apart from crossfit in some ways is is really kind of like low volume high intensity high rest um, and you just don't really get that amount of reps in. And, and obviously you said start off with 15 to 20 reps on the, on the twisting side um, one that you were talking about. 
um, the cross leg side bend. Um, how do you think about rep schemes and how many, how many reps and what kind of volume are you usually working with for yourself well, and, your, and your clients? There's a specific reason for that. Um, the movements I'm going to use with people are mobility movements, stretch movements, whatever you want to call them, because they are strength movements, but there's a big stretch to them as well. And uh, the reason why I have them use a lot of reps is because the more, more reps you can get, the more chances that dumbbell can pull them down further and further where they need to be. But also, I think we've made a big mistake with stretching. I think when we, when we stretch, we think of stretching like a rubber band, pulling a rubber band, A to B. But muscles aren't rubber bands. Muscles are more like balloons that we blow up. And it gets longer, but also gets wider. And so I think part of helping someone get more mobile isn't just having them train on a lift that requires a lot of stretching, but also trying to fill those muscles full of blood and blow them up as three-dimensional as possible so that we're stretching them from point A to point B and we're stretching them outwards, which is going to help break up scar tissue. Any muscles that are kind of stuck together, which happens, will help them get them gliding because they're going to get unstuck. <clears throat> it's also um, going to help stretch the fascial tissue. And, and, you know, the fascial tissue is like a, a sausage casing around the muscles. And you have nerves and blood vessels that pass through that fascial tissue. And they've found that fascial tissue on the cellular level is as strong as structural steel. So you do not want tight fascia. So combine a lot of reps, filling it up, trying to get that mus those muscles involved as full as possible, along with a stretch movement, you can really create a lot of stretching, a lot of loosening, you know, and that's why I use higher reps with that. That is my main purpose. How do you <clears throat> the rest of it oh, depends sorry, on, on your goals. Well, the rest of it's dependent upon your goals. If you're a bodybuilder, if you're a weightlifter, Weightlifters have a short amount of rest time. Like if you look at uh, that Lasha Talahatse, uh, the Ukrainian, I believe, who just uh, snatched 225 kilos. And even, even though he's a super heavyweight, he's only allowed two minutes rest. I mean, the weightlifters are very strong with very short rest periods, you know, and they can squat heavy, you know, for a high bar rock bottom squat, they can squat heavy, you know. Um, so reps are going to be whatever your goals are with your training. If you're looking to build mass, if you're looking to get stronger, it's, it all depends on your goals. But the high rep stuff is definitely for when I'm trying to help someone fix something, when I'm using a corrective movement, I want those high reps, you know. Cool. Um, how do you see the, the current training landscape? There's lots of different methodologies and, some seem to be more popular than others. Like what's your take on the current fitness or training landscape at the moment in the world? It's, um, I don't know how up I am on the current training landscape. It's, uh, it seems like if you either a lift a lot of weight and, or B can show off abs, you can sell anything. You know, you don't have to be very good. You don't have to be very smart. You just got to market. And I, I think that's a, that's a big problem is people are going for the marketing. So I'm trying to educate people that, hey, you can actually feel better. 
you can actually, if you, once we discover the right corrective movements, you can control how good you feel the rest of your life. You don't need me anymore. After a certain point, you know, after a certain point, I'm just going to make suggestions, you know? So I, I'm not, I'm not sure if that really answers your question, what you're looking for, but it just seems like just a lot of marketing going towards people. And, and it's, I don't really see too many people. I see all kinds of gadgets <clears throat> and, it, and people love gadgets. I mean, I've got gadgets I've created. I, I've invented and I could market and make a bunch of money off, but why, you know, a barbell, a couple of dumbbells, I don't know, a couple hundred kilos in plates and, and you'd be set for the rest of your life. I can show you how to do whatever you want, get as mobile as you want, get as strong as you want. As far as a regular person goes, you know, maybe not, not to be someone who, uh, who plays with the all blacks, but you know, <clears throat> but, uh, it's, uh, I just see a lot of, a lot of problem with marketing and I see people just not being educated. It, it's just like getting your car worked on. You're, you're at the mercy of the mechanic you go to. You don't know. They could be screwing you out of stuff. You don't know. But if you have friends that tell you a certain mechanic is good and they all go to that mechanic, now you've got some power, you know. And that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to help people do is not fall for the latest trend, not somebody who tells you what you want to hear, you know. I don't tell people, oh, this is going to go away, that's going to go away. I just say, Hey, let's see what we can do. Let's, let's see what we can do. I don't promise anyone anything. I don't, I don't want to set anyone up for any false expectations. But I will say it's funny because there are times uh, often when I train people, after a couple months, they'll come back from a weekend and say, hey, I, I did this and this this weekend. I go, but you can't do that. You can't move that way. And they'll go, oh, yeah, I, I forgot. I can't do that. So obviously they're healed. If you forgot you couldn't do something, you must be feeling good, you know. So I, I just think there's a lot of, a lot of noise and not a lot of knowledge. It seems like a lot of people aren't thinking. A lot of people are copying what other people are doing, you know. Um, I don't, I don't see a lot of results out there. I see a lot of, a lot of people claiming to be different, claiming to be uh, revolutionary or whatever, and they may be different, but it's it's not a productive different from what I see, you know, we had a lot of movement over a century ago. We had a lot of strong people that knew how to move. And I think we need to get back to that. I think we need to pretend like there's no such thing as the competitive lifting sports and go back and look at how training used to be before we got involved with the Olympics. And I think we'd be a lot better off. Where do you think people, you know, if there's coaches or people who train that are listening, where would you want to, considering that they may be like the average coach and the average person that trains yeah. that's listening, where would you, where are some places that you'd want to direct their attention in terms of research and, and things to learn about? I would look at the old books. I would look at Super Strength by Alan Calvert. I think that was written in 1924. So that was before we got into the Olympics in the United States. And, um, Dozens and dozens of exercises in there, dozens and dozens of stuff that you've probably never seen. Um, textbook of weightlifting by Arthur Saxon is a couple of dozen different, different uh, lifts in there. Um, Physical Training Simplified by our first U.S. weightlifting coach uh, at the 32 and 36 Olympics, that's Mark Berry. 
it's a good book. It still had a lot of the older exercises in it. And that's a very good book. Um, uh, W.A. Pullum from England. Oh. Weightlifting made fun and easy or simple and easy. I can't remember. And that's a good book. And he helped, uh, Pullum helped uh, create all the original rules for the, for the early snatch and the cleans and the jerks and all that. And he, he wrote most of those rules. So uh, that gives you a rough idea of where they started. And I think that was published sometime before World War I. You know, so there's reprints of these books, reproductions, and they're cheap. They're only a few dollars on Amazon or wherever. So, you know, I think those are great books. And and I don't like getting on the whole anti-steroid bandwagon. I don't like doing the steroid witch hunt. But by looking at these books that were out before steroids, you know that the recommendations were not influenced by something that does help your recovery, that makes it easy to train harder longer more often you know so you start looking at muscle magazines before 1960 it's it's pretty interesting how big and strong the bodybuilders got on three days a week training i mean we had people benching 500 pounds before steroids came around you know we had people squatting close to close to or at about 800 before steroids came around um we had john terry um in the 60 kilogram class deadlifting 272 and a half kilos which is 600 pounds at 60 kilos back in 1939 you know so we had a lot of muscle and we had a lot of strength you know do you think that so the pool of people that were pursuing lifting really heavy weights like that bloke you just mentioned is was maybe arguably smaller back in the day than it is now. Like there's more people trying to do that as a direct focus, like deadlifting heavy. Is there something that we're missing? Are we working against each, ourselves? Because, you know, you might say the average person of the, let's say 10 people in America, for example, who may have been trying to deadlift heavy, do you, sounds like they were lifting heavier than the average person of the, you know, 10 million people in America now that may be trying to deadlift heavy. The average person back in the day was lifting heavier, like it, you know, by that kind of assessment in terms I of what think you think I know. Which, yeah. Like what are we doing? I think I know Why are we saying. weaker now? Despite more people training, well, having more science and everything. I, I think there's a couple of things going on. I probably should not have given that example now that I think about it because weightlifting is different then than it is now and so back then back in john terry's day it was dip grip and rip and you weren't allowed to touch the bar to the legs like they slammed their their hips into the bar now back then that would have been a disqualification and so back then you had to keep the bar away from the body so it was a lot of mid and upper back power along with your arms well guess what that's going to do for your deadlift it's going to shoot it through the damn roof you know so it's a totally different style than the weightlifting they use today. And I think that's part of it. You know, I probably shouldn't have used that example. It's a bad example, but, um, 
they definitely were strong. And I think some of it, like I said, is, is the lifting style has changed, you know, and a lot of those guys didn't practice deadlifting. They practiced heavy snatches, heavy cleans, which allowed them to deadlift a lot of weight. So okay, cool. I, I think, I think, um, I think there's some things we might be better at and, and part of it might be due to better nutrition, you know, and of course you got more people doing it. So there's going to be more chances for people genetically better at it. I think that that can help as well. The numbers, um, but, uh, it's hard to compare because they've changed the rules on so many lifts that it's hard to compare. You know, mm. you want to say that uh, snatching in the Olympics is so much stronger today. But back in the day, they had to do it with the same grip they would have used on the clean and press. So they couldn't have done this collar to sleeve to sleeve grip. They had to do the same grip they used on a clean and press, which meant they weren't going to squat. There's no way they're going to squat under it. So they would have to split it. And one of the rules at that time also was, once you hit bottom, you had to pop right back up. There was no gaining your balance and taking a second to come up. If you didn't pop right back up, they DQ'd the lift. It was disqualified. So there was a much stricter performance that required more time, more coordination, more mobility, and you had to pop right up out of the hole. So would you say, and forget steroids, just who would want to snatch 300 pounds that way today? You know? So it's hard to say that we're stronger now than we were then um, when, we've, when we've changed the requirements of expressing that strength. Does that make sense? Yeah, the definition of strength has changed, right? Yeah, based on a sport. So what we've done is the reason why people aren't good at bent pressing today is because no one does it. Mm. You know? If bent pressing had been put into the Olympics, we would have seen a 500-pound bent press by now. You know, we, the Arthur Saxon and his two brothers, part of you know the Saxon trio, they were regularly bent pressing. They couldn't stand up with it, but they could get. They had a stage barbell that weighed 409 pounds, and they could get it. They take two hands, get it to their shoulder, and they could bend away and get under it and get their arms locked straight. They just couldn't stand up with it. But Arthur could do three, three eighty six. Stand up with three eighty six. So, so at a body weight of ninety five kilos, he was already doing uh, one seventy five. You know, and that's in nineteen oh five. So, if we had put that in the Olympics from day one, we probably definitely would be around. Uh, is it two seventy two and a half? No, two two twenty seven and a half is five hundred pounds. I think two twenty seven and a half. So we would have seen two twenty seven and a half on a bent press. So part of it is what are we focusing on versus what we used to focus on? You know, I think that's where a lot of the difference comes from. What kind of harmful misconceptions or things that we are avoiding that are hurting us? in our training 
Well, I, I get a lot of comments that what I do is dangerous. And I, I think it's kind of funny because what I do requires you to use a lot more range of motion, which means you have to use a lot less weight, which means you should be getting a full range of motion. There's no excuse. And you should be getting all the reps you're supposed to be getting. Like when I do a Steinborn lift, so it's a barbell loaded on the ground. I pick up one end and I get under it. I tip it onto my shoulders and I squat. I can tell you that everybody I've ever worked with on that lift, they don't do what they do when they normally go to the gym with a bar on the rack and they load up a bunch of plates that they're not ready for and do these quarter reps. I have to lean on them to put another five kilos on the damn bar because they're intimidated. Now, I don't do it unless I think they're ready, but the weight increases come very slowly, which is fine. They're, they're in no hurry. They're regular people. They don't need to squat a certain amount by a certain competition day. But I will lean on them to do a little more. But they're held back. It's an automatic governor. It keeps them in check. Even when I'm not around, they know they're not going to want to load up that bar any heavier. So how is it more dangerous if it's holding them back from getting hurt? You know, and I think that's a big misconception that I see from my experience with my teaching is I use a lot of lifts that require you to be very mobile to not use a lot of weight. Hmm. Yeah, again, it, I don't know, just it's a hard concept to try and encapsulate in words, but pursuing the abstract lifting like pursuing the abstract concept of lifting weights as opposed to pursuing the very concrete embodied real concept of moving better and being stronger. And they're very different things. And I feel like we're unconsciously moving towards and prioritizing that abstract concept of lifting weights and training as opposed to yeah. moving better and strength in that in that sense it's such a hard concept to i don't know i find it hard to put into words but i think i see it everywhere yeah. i remember yeah. being in university and just as a quick um example university had some guy from a, a professional sports team come on um and talk about sprint speed and he said back squatting is the people that can sprint the fastest in the team can back squat the heaviest when we tested them in the study. So therefore we'll use these half back squats to make their sprint speed go up. And I was like, put my hand up and I was like, do you ever use like weighted like sled drags or something like that? You know, um, apart from sprinting itself, if you're going to take it into the training realm and maybe add some weight or change the parameters, how about keep the complex, coordination of sprinting as close to sprinting as possible and then maybe get them to run down a slight hill or up a slight hill or drag some weight you know like is that in your realm of of thinking and he was like well we've got these studies showing that squats you know are correlated with the highest sprinting so therefore we just re reverse engineer sprinting you know what i mean and it was so hard for me to explain the difference between those two things well and so let me let me say if i if I have a call, if I'm at a university and I'm working with sprinters and I take the five best sprinters, I bet you all five of them will have the highest squats and the highest side lunges and the highest uh, step ups. So which one is the one to use the step ups, the side lunges or the squats? Just cause you tested squats and they all tested high on the squats, That can't be the only lift out there. Right. 
Sure. So your best your best sprinters will be the most powerful legs, no matter what exercise you use. Mm. You're choosing squats, but it could be step ups. It could be side lunges. Well, squats are good, but I'm going to probably take step ups or side lunges over squats for a sprinter. I'm not saying squats are useless, but why not make sure we're getting maximum power out of each leg and that they're evenly matched? Mm. That could be the difference when you're talking the top level. We're talking, you know, just a fraction of a difference between the legs to mean winning or losing a meet between a setting a national or a world record. So why instead using a, a bilateral movement, why not use a step up? Why not use a side lunge to make sure the legs are firing equally as equal as possible, right? Mm. You talk about the side lunge. I it's not rocket you, science. Yeah, of, of course. Um, by side lunge, I assume you mean like Cossack squat, that kind of movement? When you say side, uh, I have a bar on my back. I have a bar on my back. My heels are together or my feet together. It really doesn't matter. I will lunge. I will step out. I will lunge to the side. So if I'm standing on a clock, an old analog clock, my right leg is going to land on number three. Yeah. I will push back. And even though you're pushing off number three, uh, you're still pulling with your anchor leg, the left leg that stayed behind. Don't let anyone tell you you're not because you're going to use a lot of groin muscle on that leg. Mm -hmm. You can either do all the reps on that side or I like to alternate. I'll do one right and then step to the left on number nine. Push off. This time you're going to use a lot of that, the groin on the, the anchor leg, your right leg, to pull you back. So it's getting all this abduction, adduction, uh, extensor work, knee extensor work, calf work. I mean, it's one of the greatest most ignored underrated leg exercises there is, you know. And do you prefer that version, the dynamic version, instead of like a fixed kind of Cossack squat where you're maybe just, you're in like a, a like a, a wide leg stance and you're kind of leaning down to one side, squatting down to one side? I do. I'm not, I, the, the Cossack squat does have some, some value, but I see people kind of shifting rather than coming all the way up, they kind of shift back into the other side. They kind of cheated a little bit, um, and I, I just don't think it's as demanding as a side lunge. And remember, I'm, I'm working with regular mom and dads that I need to give them as much as I can within a certain amount of time, you know. So uh, I prefer the side lunge over the Cossack lunge, though there are times for it, but most of the time I'm going to have people do the side lunge. Um, how about twisting lower body movements? You talk about twisting through the spine. Do you ever do rotational squats or straighter knee kind of twisting stuff? Well, I do the, uh, the, I do the, uh, twisting side bend mm -hmm. and I will sometimes use a, um, Seventy-seven and a half kilo dumbbell, and so I have my legs absolutely straight, standing upright. Let's say the dumbbell is in my right hand. I will keeping my legs straight, twist and land that dumbbell on the other side of my feet. I'll do my reps, 
switch it to the other hand, do the same thing. Sorry, if you hold the dumbbell on your left, in your right hand, you'd be placing the weight on the outside of your left foot. Correct. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So don't, don't start out with the weight that I use. Start yeah. out much lighter. Yeah. But uh, basically, I have an inch dumbbell replica, was about, which is about 171 pounds, and I will train with that. Cool. Um, but it's, it's very good for you. Yeah, rotation you need to balance out your, your left and right bending and rotating. You, you need to, mm. uh, you really do that. And I think neck bridges are essential. I really think neck bridging, you know, we're all doing this on our phones. We're all doing stuff with our, you know, so by doing neck bridges and so on, you know, it really helps get, um, get the shoulders back, get the curve back in your cervical spine. Uh, I think it's very beneficial. I was just using it with a, uh, 78 year old and uh they were surprised because i'm like well let me let me do let me show you what it's going to do to your shoulders and i pulled their shoulders back and i i got their chest to stick out and i go all right now move your arms how does it feel and they're like the pain's gone it's like yeah it's just an alignment issue it's not it's not getting old it's just your posture has gotten to a point that your head is way far forward and you're you're pulling on nerves that aren't supposed to be pulled on so if we can get you to do some neck bridges and to pull back, it's going to go away in no time, you know? And when you're talking about neck bridges, explain what you mean to people that haven't seen those before. Well, usually if they, if they can do it lying on the floor and you're going to use your hands to help prop you up and you're going to try to pull the floor under you and you're going to pull the floor under you with the back of your head and you're going to try to get right, to, right up to where your hairline is. You want to get that up. So your body weight is supported just on your head. Okay. So your only points of contact are your two feet and the top of your head. You don't have to hold it long, but just do it during a commercial. Who needs to watch a commercial anyways on TV, right? And just do it a few times a night, a few times a day. You can even do it leaning against a wall. You can just be maybe not right up against the wall, but close to a wall and just pull your head back and try to pull down, try to pull the wall down, so to speak, with your head, the back of your head. Try to really get that chest out and pull just to help pull stuff back. It's a, I do it, to me, it's the number one thing to do before back squatting to make sure that my alignment in my shoulders and in my neck is optimal before I put you know, a hundred and, uh, well, 200 kilos on my back sometimes when I Steinborn, you know, so I think that, that alignment, cause I know a lot of people have had problems with rotator cuff injuries from heavy back squatting. And I think part of it, not necessarily all of it, but I think part of it is not ensuring that the upper back and the neck are aligned in the shoulders. If you're going to put a couple hundred kilos on your back, you're going to, you really ought to make sure everything's lined up first, you know? And in terms of neck bridges, do you just use that one where you're, you know, rolling onto the top of your head and then onto your forehead and, and the hairline? Or do you do sideways ones? Um, yeah, what do you use for those? I don't know. I usually just go straight straight back is usually what I do. That seems to bring 
the most change, the most relief for what they need for now. And what kind of muscles are being worked there? Say I did a big old set of neck bridges for the first time and I had some muscle soreness. Where would I feel that, do you think? You're going to feel it right where the collar of your shirt is probably. Right in the front there. You're going to feel it in your neck. Yeah, well, you're going to feel it in the back of the neck. Uh, You're going to feel it between your shoulder blades. Uh, You might even feel it with your chest getting stretched out if your chest has been concave too much. So you're going to get some, some, maybe some deep stretching there that might be sore because overstretching does cause soreness. Uh, that's why it's part of, part of why uh, heavy negatives can make you sore, that heavy force stretching, you know. But yeah, you're, the back of your neck and your upper back are definitely going to be sore, you know. But just go with your own pace. It, it's nothing. You're not an athlete. You don't have to fix it tonight. You don't have to fix it tomorrow night. Just let it become a habit that you do a few times a day and things are going to start to feel better, you know? And I think whenever you start doing things that are good for you and you become, it becomes part of your day, you become more mindful about doing more things that are good for you. You become more mindful of your overall health. I think you start making more mindful decisions with what you do and don't do with your body. Cool. Um, I want to talk about some mobility things. Um, there's, there's a couple of common mobility, common mobility problems that people have. And in my mind, there's not, there's still not like good clarity, um, in the general coaching community in terms of how to address them. Starting from the bottom, ankle dorsiflexion is so important for, you know, being able to do things and not being in pain as well. Um, what, what kind of things are people missing when they're trying to improve their ankle dorsiflexion and how do you go about it that um, may be a little bit different uh, than usual? I have them do um, upright rows, kneeling. I have them do a cleaning press, kneeling. Uh, I just have them do things kneeling and I, I try to get them to focus on the movement. The stretch will hurt at first, but once they get, after two or three sets, it kind of says, okay, you're going to do this, fine, whatever. And the ankles open up, and then you concentrate on your sets. And as the weight gets heavier, it pushes you down even more. And you are resisting it on some level. You are contracting your uh, tibialis anterior because you're, you're contracting the tops of your feet to resist that downward pressure. So it's, it's very interesting. It can actually get you taking some common exercises and just say, well, we'll do them kneeling. You don't have to do curl standing. You can do them kneeling. You don't have to do presses standing. You can do them kneeling. You don't have to do upright rows standing. You can do them kneeling. So it's just getting a little creative and kind of doing a distraction where if I can get them after the first couple sets, they stop feeling the feet or the ankle. They start focusing on the lift. Then they don't care anymore, you know? Mm. So it's, it's, and it's, and it's, cause if you try to, Look, I love training. You love training. But what's the first thing people dump when they're, when they're out of time or they don't have a lot of time? They skip the mobility work. So if you make the mobility work part of the training, well, the only way you're going to get to lift the weights is if you do the mobility work. Mm. They're tied together because you're program, programming in those kneeling upright rows. So that's what you're doing. So you're going to get your lift again, but you're going to get your mobility work in, you know? 
There's no escaping it. For sure. What about for ankle flexion, trying to bring the, the toes um, closer to the shin? Um, you know, that obviously is super important in terms of being able to get deep in, in any kind of lower body movement, especially squatting movements. Yep. How do you go yep. opening up that, that range as well? I use, uh, well, what I was talking about, we'll open it up. And if you're talking, cause you're going to be on the tops of your feet, the, the top of your feet will be on the floor and you'll be sitting. So when you get the weight where you want it, you'll do your reps, but you'll stay seated in a kneeling position. So you'll be sitting on your feet. If you're talking about developing those muscles more, uh, I use a, uh, a knee up. So either using a kettlebell or a dumbbell and I have it, I have them stand on a small platform or a box, what have you. I have them hold on to something. And so let's say they're going to use their right leg. I have them hook the foot under the dumbbell or the kettlebell and it hangs off that box and the support leg, the left leg is just standing on the box. And that way it's hanging below the level of the box a little bit. It's going to not just, it's not just going to work the shins. It's also going to traction your ankle, your knee joint, your hip joint, and your lower back. And what you do is you just drive your knee up as high as you can for whatever reps you're planning on doing six, eight, 10, whatever but it's going to make you really develop that strength in the shin muscles. That dorsiflexion is going to get developed. And I've worked up to 35 kilo um, dumbbells doing that. Nice. And so you're... And it's going to help uh, arches as well. Mm. And so your, your methods for increasing dorsiflexion really rely heavily on increasing the strength of the tibialis and the strength of the shortening side. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. Cause if you look at how big the calf is, that's plantar flexion. How big is that calf muscle compared to your shin muscle? Gee, I don't know where you've probably got an imbalance or a weakness, obviously your shin. Mm. So you got to get those shins stronger. You got to, that and I recommend uh, whatever work shoes they wear. Try to get a steel toe version. It's gonna it's gonna suck for a while, but eventually you're gonna build up to it, and you're all day long you're gonna be using a steel toe even if you don't need it. That extra weight, like when you talked about brushing your teeth, how much weight cumulatively over time. Same thing with walking with steel toe shoes. Nice one. Um, so in terms of thoracic spine. Um, commonly like extension is hard for people in the thoracic and they're usually pretty curved over as you were talking about with the, with the posture and whatnot, what kind of things do you do to open up people's thoracic spine? If you're talking like front to back, I'd be going back to the, uh, the neck bridges. That's going to help a lot. That's definitely going to help a lot. You know, if they can, you know, at first, like anything, you take baby steps, you start at the beginning. Um, just getting up onto your, your head a little bit is going to be good. When you can get all the way up that you can look and you can see the floor beneath you, you've rolled up onto your head enough. And then from there, you can work on trying to get your heels closer to your head over time, trying to create more of a bow of your body in a bow position. And that's really going to help you pull and open up that thoracic front to back. Does that wow. make sense? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. 
I, uh, I haven't had a go at the neck bridge on the flat ground. I've had a, a little go on a wall, but I haven't really pushed it really far back like you're talking. Um, so I'll definitely give that a try. Um, and if you try uh, doing the prayer hands behind your back in a neck bridge, let me tell you, it is a cramp from hell, so be careful. I found <laughs> that out the hard <laughs> You mean palms together I, behind the back? Behind the back in a neck bridge, yeah. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it's yeah you won't like me don't do it uh it's intense internal rotation of the shoulder very intense mm. huge cramping in the subscapularis uh and teres major and latissimus and uh pecs pec major definitely mm. but i will do a pullover impress in a neck bridge i don't know if you've seen that but i will I will get myself into a neck bridge and then I will pull a weight barbell over and then press. And that's an old time strongman lift as well. Wow. And so one thing that comes up in my mind and I bet a lot of people's mind is the neck is, you know, smaller and you would have thought more fragile. Um, like what would you say to people that would say that's going to hurt my neck? Well, anything's going to hurt anything if you do too much too soon. So just if you don't have someone there to coach you, then you're going to have to go at your own pace, you know, but you got to be honest. Is it starting to make you feel better? Because if it starts to make you feel better, you're going to want to do more of it, you know? Um, but as far as hurting your neck, I mean, it, to me, it's kind of the opposite of hurting your neck because your whole life you've got stuff pulling this way. And now you're getting it to pull this way. So you're actually, I think, giving your neck a break. And oddly enough, the neck seems to grow faster than a lot of other body parts on most people. So obviously, it's primed to be trained. You know, if, if something on you wasn't meant to be trained, it wouldn't respond to training so well. But the neck is like one of the most, like, you can get an 18-inch neck in no time without even trying. Well, you know what I mean. but without a huge amount of effort, you can get an 18 inch neck pretty easily. So the, for the neck to be that responsive, uh, I think that tells you that it is meant to be trained, that it is meant to be trained heavy. And I think the reason why is because we have so many life sustaining blood vessels and nerves there. I think the body is equipped with something to help protect us and to help us to stay alive. You know, hmm. I mean, if you, if you break your lower back, that sucks and you're not going to walk anymore. But if you break your neck, you're probably dead. But your body has put a bunch of growth potential. You know, you got your scalene muscles, you got their sternocleidomastoid. You got all kinds of muscle in there ready to go and ready to grow. So I, I know when people think, it's just funny to me because it's so obvious once you think about it. The neck is meant to be trained. It is meant to grow and to protect you. And how many football players and wrestlers back before they had seatbelts and vehicles? Uh, I think Bill Starr, uh, you're familiar with Bill Starr? No, I'm not. Yeah, look up Bill Starr sometime. He was a, uh, a weightlifter, a powerlifter, a coach. He wrote some of the uh, Defying Gravity. Um, he wrote some great books on training. Uh, I really could, you could do a whole podcast on Bill, Bill Starr. And he talked about, I think in the 60s as a weightlifter, he and a friend of his uh, got into a car accident, smacked their heads pretty hard because back then it was a metal dash, no padded dashing. 
you know, padded dash on the vehicle. And, and the doctor said it's only because their necks were so big. The, the big neck acts like a shock absorber, you know. And that's why wrestlers and boxers and so on want big necks because it absorbs that shock. So I'm sorry. I don't mean to go on too long about neck health. No, but- keep going. It's so I, – I, I don't even know that much about it. And it's so it, – I agree it's so important, but there's just no ways to train it like that are commonly right. known. Well, yeah, I would say the neck bridges help a lot. Uh, just anything you can do to try to put pressure and just even leaning back. Like, like if you're at work and you've been leaning, leaning forward too much at work, just back your chair up to a wall or something and try to pull the wall down with the back of your head, you know, try to contract those muscles and get that, get that chin towards the ceiling just to get you mindful of it. You know, I think there's, once you start looking for it, you'll find it, so to speak. Mm. Do you, do you ever play around with, um, like, head brace you know pulling a cable or pulling a band in in different ways and stuff like that no no i don't i don't i uh most of it has been uh bridging the neck back because i think i already get too much pulled forward you know i'm not saying it's worthless but it it seems like we need more pulling back more than we focus on pulling forward Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. The neck, um, I've seen uh, a video of Mike Tyson doing neck bridges where he's fully in a kind of bowed shape or, um, yeah. what I forgot what they call that in, um, in gymnastics bridge kind of thing. Oh, I don't yeah. Um, but either way and, and fully rolling around with like almost rotation, um, yeah. in, a, in a full neck bridge. And obviously, uh, he had the thickest neck ever. It's funny. I actually, I actually heard from a, a, a podcast with Charles Poliquin that he also said the neck has the greatest hypertrophy potential of, of any area in the body as well. It was crazy to hear. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Some of the old wrestlers, and I'm sure this is still true today. Some of the old wrestlers, they, um, they could take a dress shirt button it up all the way and then put it on over their head because the collar circumference <laughs> was so big to fit their necks. It was bigger than their head. Great. Yeah. Damn. So you reckon neck bridges just get, get neck bridging. What kind of like, yeah. what kind of protocol would you have people on like holds or reps? How many, how many sets? I just, yeah. I just, I just have them hold. I just want them to get used to, getting that mind muscle connection. I'm not necessarily looking for them to build a big neck, but I want them to be aware of how to contract it. Wow. Yeah. Then the next stuff is, uh, is super interesting. Um, is it like moving on to shoulder mobility and obviously shoulder and neck is, is very linked. Um, shoulder flexion is a huge problem for most people. What, do you think are the most common, uh, like what kind of things do you address most commonly with, with shoulder flexion and how do you go about increasing shoulder flexion ability in people? Well, if they, the easiest thing is to get someone to, to not bench press, but to do the pullover and press instead. So have them lay across the bench, not use the uprights, lean back, pick the bar up, pull it over, and then they can press. 
pull it back down to the chest, put it back on the floor, pull it over again, and press. So they can bench all they want, as much weight as they can pull over, as many reps as they want, but they got to be able to pull it over, and that requires a lot of shoulder mobility, mm. you know. So that's that's built in. So you reckon the pullover is uh, a super a super good exercise for really opening up opening up all the shoulder tissues and everything. Oh yeah, yeah. That and the uh, so that that way reaching back, and then of course the Kelly snatch, which it's funny because people freak out when they see me do a Kelly snatch. That's where you just you know have the bar behind you and you flip the bar up over from behind you, and you catch it bent over with straight legs and your hands pointed towards the ceiling or the hands of the highest part of your body, however you want to look at it. And I tell people, look, just, just start with a broomstick. You don't have to use a bunch of weight, but, uh, and I think I put up a video on Instagram. Was it today? I think of the Kelly snatch saying, Hey, make sure you get your legs straight on the Kelly snatch, you know? And so it builds, uh, it can, uh, release a lot of tension in your biceps. If you've got tight biceps, uh, it can also release a lot of tension in the shoulders, the front of the shoulders. Uh, and it will obviously build a lot of hamstring mobility as well. And that's, um, so you'd be standing in front of a barbell, you Correct. know, grabbing it with your palms behind you and then flipping it up so that you're kind of bowed down in a forward fold and your arms yes. are pointing straight up in shoulder extension. Yes. Hectic. That's intense. And you're, and obviously you try and like arrest the momentum of the weight to pull you into further shoulder extension, which would train those muscles. Is that what you're talking about? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I, uh, actually squat after I get it over. I'll actually sink down into a squat just, just to enjoy the balance and the stretch. True. So I kind of, yeah, I kind of make it do what I want to do. And that's the thing is I encourage people. I go, I'm going to show you how to do it but only you are going to know how it's going to feel best for you. So I'm not a big stickler on doing a lift that I show you at first. I'm going to insist a certain way do it so I, so I can make sure you understand what I'm saying. But if you're like, I need to kind of tweak it and do it this way. Cause it feels better. Great. Tweak it and do it, whatever you need, you know, and you have to be not afraid to play around. And I think that's the problem with, again, going back to learning how to quote unquote, properly bench press, properly squat, properly deadlift like well yeah it's good to know properly how to do something but we're taking it from a sport whose only concern isn't how good you feel or how well you move but how much you can lift and that has nothing to do with regular mom and dad nothing Mm. yeah i guess it's hard to coming back to the you know the sport thing as well i guess it's hard to measure it's yeah, it's hard to measure and it's hard to see how good people move and feel. Whereas it's really easy to measure and to see how much they're lifting. And so I guess that's another reason why that gets prioritized uh, as well. Yeah. And, and people just don't understand. Well, again, yeah, it's, it's lazy. You mm. really, you got some lazy coaches and lazy trainers out there. You really have to be invested with how good people feel. You have to really be invested. It has to mean a lot to you that you're helping someone that they feel better. You got to, you got to learn how to communicate. You got to learn how to ask questions. You got to learn how to explain stuff. I might explain something the same way to six people and the next two people, I explain it that way and they have no idea what I'm talking about. I got to figure it out. How do I get through to them? That's my job. Mm. In terms of uh, coaching and teaching, 
what do you think makes a good coach or a teacher? Communication. It's, it's one thing for me to do well with the lifts that I do. But really, if you want to tell how good of a coach I am, look at my students and see how good they do. Mm. doesn't matter what I do. How good are my students at doing what I instructed them to do? To help, have I gotten them to understand it, the, the, the flavor of it, the spirit of it? A good coach can make sure that their charges understand. Mm. You know? For someone that's looking to improve their capacity to communicate, do you have any advice for them as a coach? Improving their... I, I, this may sound a little odd, but I, I think the best communicators are the ones that really want to connect. They really want to help. They really want to connect with you. They don't want you leaving. I want people asking me questions. You know, I have people like, I'm sorry, I just don't understand. No, tell me you don't understand. We'll figure it out. Whatever we got to do, let's get it done. I want you understanding this. Because when they understand it, and when they realize it's not a big deal, and they're not intimidated, but they realize they're just as much a part of the process as I am, then they start, at, then they start offering suggestions. What if we did this? What if we did that? Now you've got two people working on the problem instead of one. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think your communication skills are going to be directly proportional to how much you care about connecting with that person to, for them to understand what you know. And if you value what you know and you know it's important that they know it, aren't you going to do what you need to do to help them understand it? Isn't that going to motivate you? Hmm. which is why I believe there's so much from what I see when you ask me about trends and fitness industry and so on, to me, it's very insincere. It's a lot of people trying to make money. A lot of people trying to sound intelligent, sound like they're on the ball, that they're hip, that they're up on everything. It's like, well, I think the sincerity is what really is the best seller. If you can really help people and people think you care, you're going to do all right. You know, but the yeah. best way to get better at communicating is to start caring about what you're communicating. Nice. You know, if you, if you, you know, if tomorrow you find something that you're like, Oh my goodness, this, this is going to help so many people. Let's say you find an exercise that you, you've never heard of, never seen. And it just comes to you in the middle of the night and, and you, you are like, Oh my goodness, you're going to want to make sure people understand it. You're not just going to type up some simple description. Like you're going to make sure people get it. You're going to be motivated to try to communicate it so you can connect with them and connect that, make that connection of understanding. Hmm. That makes sense. Of course. Yeah. It, it's really focused on always making sure the understanding in the client or the student is the main priority and not necessarily how you sound as a coach <laughs> in maybe trying to communicate that because as you're saying, if you really truly under, if your first priority is for the client to understand then, and that's your passion, then you're going to get it done either way. Right. Right. And if, if they see that you think it's that important, then it might occur to them that maybe it is that important, you know? Mm. So it, but you know, it's, 
it's really not hard to shine in this business. It really isn't. Damn, that's yeah, that's a really good that's a really good answer. Um, I want to touch on something I asked you about before we did the podcast was what don't people know much about you? Um, and you talked about four by four Dodge trucks. Um, why, why are you interested in them? And, uh, give us a little info about, about, uh, about that. Uh, just in, I'm, I'm interested in the early history of Dodge four wheel drive trucks. They were the first ones in the United States to offer a part-time uh, four-wheel drive system. I appreciate the utility and the simplicity of those earlier four-wheel drive trucks. And they were created, they were ordered by our government during a time that we were supposedly at peace, but they were obviously designed to be used in Europe right around the beginning of uh, Germany becoming what it became in the 30s. So it's a, it's a very interesting, like, why did the government order uh, almost 800 of these when we weren't at war and we were seven or eight years from Pearl Harbor? Why were we gearing up? And these trucks are a curious question. What was going on? You know, so there's a historical aspect that intrigues me as well. A lot of this conversation, a lot of your work revolves around looking back in time for answers and not necessarily being infatuated with the latest trends um, of whatever people are putting out now. And that strikes me as a rare perspective these days. Maybe I'm listening to the wrong people, but well, what can you say to people about looking back um, in time for answers, especially beyond five years and, and, and past, you know, you're talking about things from a hundred years ago. Um, right. You know, what can people gain from, you know, really looking back and, and an interest in history? I would say that um, the, the looking back is like, well, where did we, how did we get to where we are now? Why? Cause I, I, for the first 20 years just accepted we did things the way we did them because we had slowly learned that this is the best way of going about things. And I started to figure out, no, this isn't the, this has just become something we've been told is better, but it isn't necessarily. Um, George Olison, who was a professional strongman from Denmark, he was on the cover of a 1997 Iron Man magazine. And it said, is George Olison the strongest man alive? And he was doing a middle finger deadlift of over 700 pounds. So like two, uh, three, what's that? Three twenty-five, three thirty, somewhere in there. And uh, so over seven hundred pound middle finger. This was two mink that middle arm, fingers. One, one, one middle finger. One. What? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. insane, dude. And, oh yeah, and so he had one arm. The arm that he did that feat with was three inches bigger than the other arm. He's 60 years old now and he retired years ago. And that arm is still three inches bigger than the other arm. Wow. So Iron Man magazine said, okay, we know you guys are interested in having a bigger arm like George. We're not going to tell you to do middle finger deadlifts, but we're going to tell you how to do a one hand dumbbell deadlift. So I did it and set it up kind of like George did. And I don't remember doing anything from my arm, but it blew up both my delts because I tried it with both hands. And I had been bodybuilding for over 25 years. 
but this blew up my delts like nothing else. And I said, huh, I think there's something I might be missing from the past. So what else is out there? And that's when I slowly started my journey of going, what else is out there that we've been told we don't need anymore? What if you do need it? How do you know? You know, I'm never going to get around to all the dumbbell and barbell exercises I want to get to. And I've done hundreds, possibly thousands of different ones. So the history, finding out why we do things we do, what, what motivated, motivated us to create the exercises we create, helps us understand what the goal is. You know, what if, what if your coach has no idea and his goal with this exercise is different than the person that came up with it? That may be good. That may be bad. It may be nothing. But I think by looking back and seeing why we started or stopped doing something can help us understand. Don't let that decision that was made 80 years ago, 20 years ago, don't let that decision be made for you. Go back and find out why that changed and decide, is that change good for me as well? Like uh, I, I always rail on trap bar and hex bar deadlifts. I think they're the most useless things in the world. And when I started training in the 80s, everybody could deadlift. There were some people that couldn't squat, had a bad back, and would use the leg press, but everybody could deadlift. <clears throat> now, you've got so many people that can't use, I can't deadlift with a regular bar. I have to use a hex bar with the high handles, or I have to use a trap bar. And it's like I wrote a post one day calling the hex bar high handles, the, the training wheels that never come off. Because if you can pull four plates on a bar, you can pull four plates on a trap or a hex bar, but the opposite is not true. So how did, how did all of a sudden people couldn't deadlift anymore? I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. I never saw it until it became an option. Now it's an option, so now people can't do it. So, you know, I think the history can help you understand why we do what we do. And you can then make that decision, is it better for us or not? You know? So the other thing that I think is problematic, each generation, your generation, my generation, when we were out of high school in our 20s, we think that where the world is, is the best it's ever been. I think it's a natural thing to do. I think we think we're as advanced as we could be. And, and we are where we are because we've done all the things we needed to do to get here. We've gotten rid of all the junk, the crap, and we're, we're on the best fast track to growth and a future. And it's just not true. You know, so you have to look at where are you at right now? Is it really better? Are we better using a power rack? Do you realize why power racks were created? They were created for athletes going to the Olympics. They had nothing to do with me, athletes like you and I. But now they've been marketed as a safety tool. That's not why they were invented. They were invented for athletes going to the Olympics to save energy so they wouldn't have to pick the bar up and get it on their backs, but they could squat right off the rack so they could put more time and energy into their competition lifts. Why did wrist, where did wrist straps come from? Again, guys going to the Olympics. You had people like um, uh, Paul Anderson and Doug Hepburn, two of the greatest weightlifters of the 50s. And they were using straps. They made their own straps. But it was for guys going to the Olympics. It's a, it's a high-level, Olympic-level tool. It's not meant for regular people. Yeah, how many people use straps now? Everybody in the gym uses straps. <laughs> you know, and what does it allow you to do? It allows you to lift more weight than you're ready for.
What does a squat rack allow you to do? Put more weight on the bar than you're ready for. So is it advancement? Is it for you? You know? So that's why history is important. Yeah, that's so interesting, man. <laughs> I love that. This conversation has been, yeah, really uh, eye-opening. I just, uh, I think a lot of the people that I get on the podcast have unique perspectives and I think you're no exception to that as well. Um, yeah, it's such, oh, it is, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, it's sick. It's mind-blowing how, how many different things we take for granted now that aren't necessarily that you don't take for granted because like you, you know what happened before we use straps and, and power racks and things. Well, like I did that. for 20 years. I mean, I definitely had to have an awakening. I had to have a slap upside the head by reality. I mean, I was, you know, I don't fault people. I don't think I'm better than people. I just, I'm just trying to share that what I've learned with people to help them make better decisions for themselves. That's all. Mm. A lot Don't of the things, the marketing, you know. Yeah, a lot of the things we've talked about as well have also a theme that's come out is kind of like ego lifting and ego training, you know, and that is links in with the just trying to lift higher weight and not necessarily pursuing better movement. If someone right. knows that they're prone towards that, how would you? what kind of, what would you have to say to them to try and reorganize how they think about their training so that they're prioritizing movement more and, and not the weight as much? Well, kind of going back on what I just said, get rid of your power rack, get rid of the uprights on your bench, get rid of your wrist straps. You're going to be limited with how much you can do. You're going to have to hold back. You're going to have to take more time to get those weight increases. You know, that simple, mm. you know, and I know when I, when I insist my trainees don't use a power rack or something and they're on vacation somewhere and there's just a barbell and some plates, to them, that's what they're used to using. And I know that they're not going to go too heavy because they never go too heavy because they never want to put more weight on the bar for a Steinborn lift, you know? So mm. it's, it's self-limiting, you know? Just take out the temptation. Don't make it so easy for you to put more weight on the bar than you should, you know? Mm. Yeah, it's funny. And, I, and of course, again, we're not we're not talking competitive athletes. I'm just talking regular folks that want to get stronger. Like, like you got to have your clients get stronger, so they have a goal of trying to get a little up to this point or up to that point. But do do they really need to squat more than this much? Do they need to squat more than that much? Do they need to deadlift more? Do they need to squat two times body weight? Probably not. Probably one and a half times body weight will be fine. Uh, a two times body weight deadlift probably isn't a big deal a few de few years down the road without trying very hard, you know, but are they going to need more than that? No, you know, it's not a big deal for someone who weighs 200 pounds to squat, uh, to deadlift 400 pounds. You know, it's not, you know, or someone who weighs 90 kilos to deadlift 180 kilos. It's not a big deal. You know, you should be able to get a regular person to do that in a few years time without super intense training. And they're not in a rush. So you shouldn't be in a rush to get them there. You know? mm. So there's just no need to rush people to get super strong or super whatever. You know? But I think a lot of people try to do that. Mm. And the client gets burned out. They get sick because they're worn out. That's not doing anyone any good. You know? 
But yeah, get rid of get rid of the stuff that makes it easy. Get rid of the wrist traps. Get rid of the get rid of the squat rack, the power rack. You know. What Better yet, stop doing belt? stop doing a squat. Do do a side lunge instead. Mm -hmm. Now you're gonna have to use a lot less weight. But your squats are gonna go up because you're gonna have more balanced leg power. Mm. I assume that you're that you have similar perspectives on weightlifting belts. Yeah, I don't use one. I stopped using one over 30 years ago. Fred Hatfield, one of the greatest powerlifters of all time, actually. His in, it was his, his influence that had me give it up, and I just never got back to it. So uh, pretty much the only time I'll use a belt, if, uh, if I'm doing a, a continental to belt or some kind of lift where you rested on the belt, but that's about it. But I, I don't worry about it. And I, I like moving without a belt. You know, I, I definitely like the, the feel of not having a belt on. Mm. And even when I compete in strongman, I don't wear a belt. So when I'm doing the car squat or the car deadlift or picking up a 150 to 160 kilogram Atlas stone and loading that, not, you know, none of it. You know, I don't have a belt. Mm. How does your back feel, you know, for the people who are thinking, you know, loaded spinal flexion is bad. Like how does your back feel? I, I feel great. I I started a new job and my feet were hurting because I bought the wrong shoes. So I'm waiting for the right shoes to come in. And I, I was going to use some aspirin, but I, I use aspirin so infrequently I couldn't find my aspirin. Hmm. So if that tells you <laughs> how, how, how much I obviously don't hurt because I can't find where I, hid, where I hid my aspirin on myself, not that I hid it, but I put it somewhere and I can't find my aspirin. So obviously that's how often I use aspirin that I can't even find the aspirin bottle. Mm. You know. How old are you, James? I will be 50 years old in November. What would you have to say to anyone that's feeling the effects of aging um, and maybe making excuses for themselves? I would say from what I've discovered and I talked about with other athletes getting, getting somewhere around my age that 90% of it ain't aging. It's just if I moved as much as I did when I was 25, I would feel so much better. If we all just moved half as much as we did in our 20s. I'm not even talking like training, training, just moving. Like I, I used to play hacky sack four to five hours a week. If I just did half that, how much better would I feel? You know what I mean? Mm. So, yeah, I'm getting older. It's harder to get up off the couch, but is it harder to get up the, off the couch because I'm older? Was it because I'm just not moving enough? It's because I'm not moving enough, you know. Mm. What advice did you need to hear from yourself when you first started training? Well, it was I was motivated. I had the sciatica, so I just needed to be able to get stronger so I could work. I'm like, I, I want to be able to hold down a job, and I knew I was going to be in pain the rest of my life. And I just figured I would try to get as strong as possible so I could work. So my motivation was being able to work. Thank God the, the sciatica went away. But that was just out of dumb ignorance. I had no idea. You know, I wound up helping people unintentionally over the next few years. And kind of each time it happened, I'd be like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. You know, I helped a woman that had a partially dislocated elbow by lifting. Um, it was I just, uh, 
my girlfriend at the time said, uh, oh, you can help her. You lift. And I go, what, what, what? Help her with what? What are you talking about? What are you getting me into? I'm in high school. And uh, it says, oh, my elbow feels like it's got a bubble in it, which I knew meant it was like a type of dislocation. And uh, so I reached into the refrigerator and I grabbed a jug of milk and it had a handle on it like a hammer curl. And she was not an athlete and she was very thin and weak. But I said, all right, try to curl this a few times like a hammer curl. And she did it once and she struggled. And right in the middle of the second one, you just heard this big pop. And all of a sudden, this big look of relief on her face. Hmm. Oh, I feel so much better. Thank you. You're a genius. And I'm like, I think that was, that's, that's from heaven because that was not me. I don't know where that blind inspiration came from. But I was like, wow. Huh. But you don't know what to do with it because, again, it was a society that weightlifting had nothing to do with health. Nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, you either did it as a sport or you did it because you were insecure or gay or narcissistic or whatever. So, um, but then I would have alignment issues and I'd say, well, I'll just go in and do a light workout. And then I'd start to feel better. So I'd add a little more weight. And then I'd start to feel even more better. Like the alignment was coming back in my back. And I'm like, you know, it happened after a few times. You're realizing, so if I can get the muscles to pull gently enough, but work them, it'll pull everything back in line. And that's when I started realizing I could control my posture. I could control subluxations, dislocations by strengthening and stretching the right things. You know, Mm. that was a long, slow process. I mean, there was no one helping me with that. That was just stumbling along in the dark and these occasional discoveries and finally putting two and two together, you know? Wow. Um, James, uh, we'll have to wrap up. Um, I want people to, I want you to tell people where they can find more about your work, um, or where you put out content and, and, uh, possibly working with you or however you do that. So give people a little information about how to find more about you. Yeah. If you want to see more crazy, silly stuff by a guy that's almost a half century year old, just come on to strongman underscore archeology span on Instagram. That's probably the easiest way to find me. That's where most of my content is. And you can contact me through message me through Instagram uh, if you want, but that's, that's where you're going to see all the silly, crazy stuff. Believe me. Cool. I try not to get too strongman circus show kind of stuff, but. I try to, I do certain stunts every now and again, but most of what I do does have something applicable, you know? Cool. Well, James, it's been awesome to meet you and yeah, great like to meet this, you. I feel like this conversation could have gone on for another two hours. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Because there's, yeah, there's, it's hard to get me to shut up once I get going. You're right yeah. about that. I know you're the perfect podcast guest. You just wind you up, let you go. Um, so yeah, man, thank you so much. I, pr- I really appreciate you. your time. Like, you know, it's nighttime over there. If, if you're watching this in a uh, video, you'll be able to see it's slowly getting darker. So I appreciate your time. Yeah. So much, James. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to HFP conversations. Your support is greatly appreciated by the HFP community and the guests that appear on the show. If you have any questions or if you want to reach out, hit us up on social media Again, you can find the links in the episode description. I would love to hear from you. Have a beautiful day.